Good morning. So this is what it looks like from up here. I haven't been up here in a while. It's good to see you guys. Uh, so I, this is my first chance to preach in the new year. So welcome to 2023. How's it going for you so far? Good. How was your 2022? Okay, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> I mean, you had a whole year. Did you accomplish everything you set out to accomplish last year? Did everything go the way you thought it would go? All right, all right. You don't seem too excited. Um, how about this? Uh, any new resolutions for this year that you've already given up on? Because <laughs> we do give up on them. People are fickle. People get distracted. We, we lose our motivation. I don't want to rain on your parade, uh, but that's what happens. Because all kinds of stuff happens with people that cause us to have great ideas and great plans and say, oh, this is going to be different. I'm going to do this differently. I mean, there's been a lot of gym memberships sold right at the end of the year, and people are still as fat as ever. So I'm just, I'm just saying, like, I'm just saying. <laughs> The bottom line is, as people, we don't always finish what we start. I, I recently I have been doing some research and reading about uh, art history, and, um, and I've been reading about unfinished masterpieces, unfinished works of art. So picture this. like Think of whatever you think of as a masterpiece, the Mona Lisa without a face, right? Just a sketch. Or or something like the Sistine Chapel, if it was just drawn in pencil, or um, imagine Da Vinci's Last Supper, it was like four disciples there. Um, there's a whole category of great art that is known as unfinished masterpieces. And these are, these are works of art by the great artists that, for whatever reason, are left unfinished. They're, they're in music, they're in painting, in sculpting, in, in writing. Um, there's all these examples. For example, um, uh, one of the greatest pieces of music, I think, ever written is Mozart's Requiem. And uh, if you heard it, 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 you'd be blown away. It's this incredible orchestral and choral arrangements and it was written for a mass and it goes like 45 minutes to an hour and it's this unbelievable piece of music but if you're if you really have a trained ear and you listen carefully you realize that about three quarters of the way through it changes a little bit and that's because it never got finished Mozart died while he was writing it and because of that we have no idea who finished it. We just know somebody got hired to finish it because Mozart's wife did not want to give the money back that he had already been paid for writing this thing. So we have Mozart's Requiem. Uh, Jeffrey Chaucer wrote the Canterbury Tales, which if you don't remember 10th grade English, uh, was, was probably the first great work of literature that's written in English. And if you had to read them in high school or even part of it, you'll remember that as it begins, the author promises that there's gonna be over 100 tales told by 27 pilgrims, each of whom are going to tell four tales. And yet, when you read it, you only get 24 tales. And it's all about a storytelling contest, but we never find out who won the storytelling contest. And the reason is, guess, Chaucer died. People have a way of dying. 
and it sends, tends to get in the way of what's going on. Another example, literature. Um, uh, Charles Dickens, ever hear of him? So he wrote a couple of stories, and he wrote a book called The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And there was supposed to be 12 installments in this series of stories about Edmund, Edwin Drood, but again, Dickens dies before it's all done, and so we never find out how the mystery is solved. We never find out what happened to the main character who vanishes early in the story and is supposed to be the basis of it. And still, it's considered a great work of literature even though it's a mystery with no solution. Elizabeth Shumatov. You guys know Elizabeth Shumatov, right? She was a, a great artist in the 20th century and she was commissioned to do a painting of the now retired president Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And she did it at his home with him seated in the kitchen on a kitchen chair. And as she began to paint, she was a couple of hours into the painting when he said, I need to take a break, I've got a terrible headache. And he stood up and fell over from a stroke and died. So it wasn't that the artist died, it was that the subject died, and as a result, the painting never got finished. It looks like that. And so that's the painting that we have of him, uh, and it was painted literally within moments of the time that he died. Another, another artist, Benjamin West. Are you enjoying this, uh, this history of art? <laughs> Benjamin West, uh, he, he painted a painting called the Treaty of Paris, right? So if you remember history, the Treaty of Paris is uh, the signing uh, to end the Revolutionary War, right, between the United States and Great Britain. And so they agreed that they were gonna do this painting of the signing, and they seated for it, but as they got into it, the British officers said, we refuse to be painted in the midst of our shame and defeat, and so they had to scrap the whole thing when it was halfway done, and this is the way the painting ended up, and it hangs in a museum today in exactly that condition for that reason. But for me, the most interesting one, or one of the most interesting ones, is from Michelangelo. Michelangelo, as you know, was, a, was not only a great painter, but he was a great sculptor, and he was commissioned by Pope Julius II to do uh, 16 statues for the Pope's tomb when he died. And he got started, one of them you know, it's Michelangelo's David. And it was constructed for the tomb of Pope Julius II, um, but he never finished. There were supposed to be 16 statues. He got four more of them underway, and those four are now on display in a museum, and they're called the prisoners or the slaves. And the reason why is because Michelangelo has famously quoted as saying, I don't create art, I simply remove the marble from outside of the statue to free the statue from the marble. And so he has these prisoners that are not really free yet, they're stuck in the marble. And so they're known as the prisoners and they're considered great masterpieces. Now why do you suppose he didn't finish these? No. It's because the Pope changed his mind. And the Pope said, you know what, we have this chapel called the Sistine Chapel, and I'd really like you to paint the ceiling of that. And he spent years painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and so the prisoners remained in this condition. There are countless other examples 
unfinished uh, architecture, cathedrals and castles all around Europe that never got finished because of war or because of the death of a king or something like that. And probably the one that you're familiar with right here in California in San Jose is a place called the Winchester House. Anybody been to the Winchester House, right? It's this massive, incredible thing. That's the picture of it. And it was, um, it was the Winchester Rifle family and that when the husband died, they were starting to build this house, and the wife, Mrs. Winchester, according to legend, um, thought the house was haunted. And she thought it was haunted because of all the people who had been killed by Winchester rifles, and that they had come back to haunt her. And so, um, for some reason, she got this idea that if she ever completed construction on the house, she would die. Uh, I think there was a, the, apparently the uh, voice of a ghost that told her, if you ever finish in this construction, you will die. I have a theory. My theory is it was the general contractor hiding in the attic who told her that. <laughs> Makes a lot more sense to me. I think that's probably what happened. Um, but it, you know, it has staircases that lead nowhere, doors that open to nothing, rooms that uh, have no access, windows that don't go out of the building, all that kind of stuff. And it's this really weird house and you can go there and tour it. And just to give you guys an idea of how committed I am to serving you as your pastor and preparing these sermons, I drove all the way to San Jose this week so that I could go to the Winchester house. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, that's uh, some sort of, you know, uh, photography thing. No, we actually drove to San Jose this week in the rain, went to the Winchester house, posed by that, and then drove back home. We may have had a couple other things to do, but we, we were up there just a couple of days ago. So listen, guys, when you, when you think about your life, when you look at the condition uh, of our church, when you think about um, the general condition of the, the church as a whole, worldwide, or, or when you look maybe at our society, our culture, or, or the whole world, um, if this was the end of the story, if it had to end now, we'd be in big trouble, right? It's a discouraging thought. If this was as mature as you would ever get, that would be pretty horrible. If this, if this was as good as your marriage could ever be, today's condition, that would be pretty discouraging. If this was um, as good as you were going to get financially or health-wise or in your career, how would you feel about that? Kind of depressing, right? But I have good news for you. God is not finished yet. This is not the end of the story. And God is not like people. He always finishes what he starts. And in 1991, which is a million and seven years ago, in 1991, it really truly looked like God was finished with this church. That, that, that this church had been planted in 1987 and it was this young church plant and it was off to a good start. We had this great pastor and a, and a good a core group of people and uh, this youth ministry that was beginning to flourish and cool things were happening. And, uh, and then one day we get word from the senior pastor that uh, he's gonna move to Idaho 
that he's been called to another ministry and he's got another passion, another vision, and he moves up to Idaho and uh, gives us about a month or, or two to get ready for that. And we just sort of look at each other as a church and went, what do we do now? Because our pastor was like the centerpiece of the whole church. He was the main reason that everyone was in that church was because they were drawn to this pastor. And then he tells us that he's going to leave and the Lord calls him somewhere else and he needs to be faithful to that. And so uh, I was the youth pastor at that time. And so they came to me, the leaders of the church came to me and said, listen, um, could you think you could handle filling the pulpit for about six weeks while we look for a new pastor. And that we should have a new pastor easily in six weeks. That's how stupid we were. That's how clueless we were. We had no experience with any of this and we thought, hey, we'll just, I don't know, run an ad in the penny saver and then we'll probably have a new pastor. That's probably how we're gonna do this. So I said, okay, I can do my youth ministry and preach for about six weeks. And that, that first week of my preaching was the first Sunday in January in 1992. And I remember that by that time, I had already heard from a third of the congregation saying, we're not staying, we're going to go. And so we were just little upstart little church plant and we had no money and now we had no leadership and now half of our people are ready to leave and it's up to me to get in the pulpit on that first Sunday in 1992 and to somehow inspire the troops and get people excited about the fact that maybe there's a future for this church. But I'm gonna be honest with you, as I began to study and prepare to preach that sermon, I had no idea if God had a future for that church. It, it, it seemed very reasonable to take those people, maybe 50 of us, and say, well, let's just go salt some other churches and we'll, we'll bless other ministries and, and we'll be blessed by other ministries. But there was this strong sense among the leadership that God wasn't finished yet. And so as I sat down and sought God and began to open the word of God and study and prepare, he really led me to the book of Philippians. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'm gonna invite you to turn to the book of Philippians with me. Um, and that first Sunday in, in January of 1992, 31 years ago, I stood up on Sunday morning and I preached from Philippians chapter one and verse six a message that I didn't know at the time was gonna turn out to be the Winchester House of Sermons. <laughs> Just this never-ending series of messages from Philippians 1, and it blows my mind now to think that even at the tender age of something, I, I uh, have now been preaching this sermon or a, a, from this passage a new installment of this sermon, this is the 32nd year in a row. And so it's been amazing to watch what God has done and it's become a tradition for us at Grace Fellowship to stop in the, uh, early in January and to say, hey, let's think about where we've come from, where we're going and how faithful God is to bring us there. And as we look forward to the next year, what can we expect? Because as I look out, there's maybe three or four people here who were here on that Sunday in 1992. And uh, one of them is David, and he was like three years old or something, so he doesn't count. Um, and, and 
And so not all of you have seen this amazing story take place, and I'm not going to recap that whole story for you, but I am going to tell you this is part 32 in this series, and it's based in Philippians chapter 1. So join me in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 1, and let's just read the first six verses. As Paul introduces um, the letter, he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm confident of this very thing, Paul writes, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, um, let me just give you some background so we can actually dig into this passage a little bit and understand what, what Paul is saying here and how it applies to us. First of all, he's writing to a, to a church in a, in a city called Philippi. And Philippi in the first century um, is located in what you would think of now as the northeastern corner of Greece. And, and really, it was the first city in all of the continent of Europe to receive the gospel. It was the first place that Paul and Silas stopped when they finally got to Europe with the gospel. And the city was founded in the fourth century BC by Philip of Macedon, who you may not remember from your history books, but his son, you do remember, he's a guy named Alexander the Great. And so Philip is the father of Alexander the Great, and he's the founder of this city, which he names after himself, and he calls it Philippi. And I don't blame him. If I founded a city, I would call it Dougville. I think that would be <laughs> completely understandable. So I'm not bashing the guy, but he calls it Philippi. And Philippi at that time that Paul arrived was almost entirely Gentile. And one of the ways we know that is because anytime there was like 10 men uh, who were Jews in a city, they would have a synagogue and they would meet there on the Sabbath. But if there was not at least 10 men, then what they would do is they would go outside the city wall and any of the Jews would worship on the Sabbath outside the city walls. And so when he got there, there were not only not 10 men, there was not only not a synagogue, but there weren't any men that were told who were worshipers of God. He went outside the city walls to see if there were any Jews out there, and he found a few women worshiping by the riverside, and one of them, Lydia, was not even a Jew by birth, but she was what was called a proselyte. She had become a Jew, so she's a Gentile living Philippi who begins to seek after the God of the Bible and becomes a Jew, and, and he speaks to these women and shares the gospel of Christ with them, and most of them shrug their shoulders and go back home except for Lydia. Lydia is so moved by the message of the gospel that she invites them to her home and he shares the gospel with her family and Lydia and her whole family come to know Jesus in that day. She's the first convert in all of Europe. And so that's the beginning 
of the Philippian church. Paul shares the gospel with these women and uh, Lydia's household gets saved. Then as they go through town, there's a teenage girl who's a slave who is demon possessed and she's working as a fortune teller and Paul casts the demon out of her which makes her no longer able to tell fortunes which makes her owner angry and so they take them into custody and they beat Paul and Silas almost to death in the city square. They throw them into jail, they put them in stocks in a cell in the jail, they lock the stocks, they lock the cell, these guys are bloody, broken bones, they're, they've been beaten almost to death, and they're just sort of hanging in a dungeon. And they start singing praises to God. In the midst of that kind of pain, in the midst of that kind of confusion, in the midst of that kind of suffering, they start praising God and lifting up worship songs to God. And as the other prisoners are listening to these songs, suddenly the earth begins to shake and God sends an earthquake and it was a crazy earthquake because you know what it did? It broke the chains that bound them and it opened all the cell doors. And so the jailer comes running in thinking everybody's escaping. And he says, no, no, nobody's escaping. And the jailer says, what happened? He goes, let me tell you about my God. And he tells the jailer and his family about Jesus. And the jailer and his family get saved. And so now we have Lydia's family and the jailer's family. And basically, Paul is run out of town. And so Paul and Silas leave with two families and uh, presumably the slave girl, who have now received Christ. And that is the entire church in Philippi. Not a single mature believer, not a single pastor, nobody who has any idea about the gospel. It's brand new to all of them. They've been Christians for two days and the only mature Christians they know leave and don't come back. Now, if you were a betting person and you had to bet whether that church would become a world-changing church, what are the odds of that? And yet, that is literally exactly what happened. In fact, the Philippian church became like the uh, poster child or or like like the successful older sibling, right, to all the other churches. Because whenever Paul would write to these churches, he basically would say, why can't you be more like the Philippians? And, And so I just, you know, on behalf of younger siblings everywhere... Let me just say, okay, Paul, we get it. We get it. They're better than us, okay? But he's always using the Philippians and holding them up as an example. Um, and, and guys, if I could just take a quick side note and get away from my notes for a second and just share my heart with you about something. If I was writing a book of the Bible right now, and don't worry, that's probably not going to happen. But if I was writing a book of the Bible right now and I needed an example of a church to hold up and say, hey, be more like this church, I would write about you guys. I, w- I, would, I would write about the people of Grace Fellowship. I was just thinking as I was praying at the end of the year about, about what God's done in our midst this year, and I was thinking, wow, even, even just so recently at, at Christmas time, I mean, it's Christmas time. The, how, how's the economy, everybody? Going good? Everybody doing good? Good. Eggs are $90,000 a dozen. <laughs> But that's okay because you can't afford gas to get to the store to buy the eggs, so it doesn't matter, right? People are broke, 
everything's expensive, it's Christmas time, and I stand up here like some fool and say, hey guys, I just heard about Wells of Hope in Uganda and how they're desperately raising funds and they're up against a, um, up against a deadline and they need a lot of money and they need it soon to touch the lives of children in Africa and change their lives forever. And so if the Lord puts it on your heart, if you would want to give to that, do you know we sent $12,500? That's like Christmas time in a bad economy. And I, I'm, just, I'm just like, I am so humbled to be a part of this church family. I am so glad that God has somehow, like 32 years ago, said, you know what, don't worry, Doug, I'll keep you from breaking everything and I'll just drag you along long enough that now here we are and I see what God is doing and has done in this church family. Anyway, that was my side note. Um, what was I talking about? Philippi. Okay. Um, seriously, how does a little group of brand new Christians in Philippi, a place that has never heard the gospel, a place where there are no mature believers, there's no leadership in the church, how does a church like that become literally one of the most impactful churches in the history of the world? How does that happen? It's obviously not because Paul was a great leader. Paul wasn't even there. He was out of there. It's obviously not because the people were such mature Christians. I mean, there's only like five or 10 Christians in the whole city, and they've all been Christians for two days by the time Paul leaves. So there's no maturity whatsoever. They don't have Bibles. They don't have anything. How in the world does this happen? Here's how it happens. It's because unlike Michelangelo and Charles Dickens and Lady Winchester, God can always be trusted to complete the good work he begins. That's why. And when you look at the history of our church, there is no question that God began a good work here. And there is no question that God's thumbprints are stamped all over the history of our church. By the way, um, just to save us the time today, if, if you haven't already done so, if you go to the church website, gracedewardy.com, there's a, there's a thing you can click on called Next Steps that tells you the whole history of our church, and it will blow your mind to watch the things God has done over these years. It's just every time it makes my heart um, fill with joy and my eyes fill with tears to think what God has done in this church. I highly recommend that you check that out if you haven't done so. But as we look again at Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, I want to remind you of a few things. Philippians 1 6, let's read it again. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What is the basis of Paul's confidence? That's a pretty bold statement. I'm confident that God is going to turn you into a great world-changing church. How can he have so much confidence? Is it because they have such a wonderful and gifted ministry team leading things? No, we already explained that. Is it because of their huge bank account and their fancy building right in the center of town, right on the road that everybody has to pass? No, they don't have any of those things. Is it because of their great children's ministry curriculum? No such thing as children's ministry curriculum at that time. Is it because of their physical location and where they're located? Is it because of their social media presence? I'm guessing not. Why? Why is he confident about this? 
The basis of Paul's confidence is not any of those things that we tend to put our confidence in. The basis for Paul's confidence is God himself. God began the Philippian church, and Paul knows that. God will be the reason they succeed and become mature, and Paul knows that. Some of us, as we enter a new year, it's a natural time to stop and take stock and consider and think about plans and where we need to grow and what our goals are and all that kind of stuff. And some of us, as we came to the end of 2022 and we sort of limped into 2023, some of us, we're not so optimistic at all about how things are going for us. Not so optimistic at all about our own lives. We're frustrated by the slowness of the progress that we're making. We're not hopeful that we'll do any better in 2023 than we did in 22, some of us. We see other Christians that seem to have their act together and everything's going great for them. And we think, I can never be that mature. I can never be that God-honoring. But let me remind you about something. Your transformation, the transformation and maturing work that God is doing in your life is not, underline not, dependent upon your strength. It's dependent upon his. And that makes all the difference in the world. Your growth and maturity is not dependent upon your faithfulness. It's dependent upon his faithfulness. It's not dependent upon your wisdom. It's not dependent upon your talent. It's not dependent upon your resources. It's dependent upon his. Did God begin a good transforming work in your life ever at some point? Then you can be confident despite yourself, despite your weaknesses, despite your stumblings, despite your distractions, you can be confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Regardless of your lack of power, because it's about his power. It's about his love. It's about his resources and his unending patience with us. He's gonna complete the good work that he's begun. And, and let me show you what I mean. Just give you an example of this. Just leave your finger there in Philippians. Turn back to the left a little bit to the book of Romans. And in 2022, we spent quite a bit of time in Romans. You should be able to find that fairly easily. But I want you to go to Romans in chapter eight. And I'm not gonna preach on this. I'm just using it as an illustration or example. If you're interested in these verses, go to the website or the podcast. You can look up this passage and you can listen to this sermon that I preached on this. But in chapter eight of the book of Romans, beginning in verse 28, let me read it to you. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Who causes? Okay. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What, shall we, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And, and that's really maybe my favorite passage in the whole Bible. And I could preach for months and months on those verses alone. But here's what I want to say. I, I just want you to notice something. Everything it says there is in the past tense. It says that sometime in the past, God foreknew you. To foreknow you means that he knew you before you were you. God knew you before you existed. 
And it says those whom he foreknew, that's a long time ago, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And it goes on and says that those whom he predestined, he also called, called is also past tense. Those whom he called, he also justified, that's past tense. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And I know I talk about this all the time, so forgive me if you're hearing this again, but it is amazing to me to realize that way before time, God foreknew me, that God chose me. There was a point in which God called me and gave me the faith to believe as I grappled with the gospel. And at that point, when I believed and put my trust in God, he actually saved me and gave me new life and made me a new person born again in him. And it says, those whom he justified he also glorified. And that's the part that makes me shake my head because I don't know about you, but I look around and I go, I don't see all the glory. This doesn't seem like glorification. What is this glorified thing? It's past tense. It says he already did it. It's talking about when you get to heaven. It's saying that when God begins something, there is no chance that it will not be completed because God cannot be thwarted. There's no one strong enough to stop him because God does not get distracted because he's perfect, because God does not change his mind as a man would because he's God, because God's love doesn't end uh, a run out because God is love, because God doesn't die before the art is finished. In Ephesians 2, it says we are the masterpiece that he is creating and he will finish what he starts. It is amazing to me to stop and realize that despite all the ways I have messed up and got distracted and got off track and all that kind of stuff, God just has a way of just bumping me back into his good graces. And he's not finished with me yet. And as I look out upon the faces in this room and think about the people who are watching online, I think, I don't know anybody's story. I don't know what everybody's going through. Some of us right now are just going, we're, we're just like at the end of our ropes. Some of us right now are just like grabbing for straws and hoping. And some of us are losing hope. And I want to remind you, it's not about your circumstances. It's not about your wisdom. It's not about your power. It's not about your strength. It's about him who is faithful. He finishes the good work that he begins. And by the way, this doesn't just apply to us as, ind as individuals. It applies to us as a local church. In fact, if we go back to Philippians again, go back to Philippians 1. And let me just read again the first five verses. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints Underline all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. The you there in Greek is plural. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Also plural. Number verse four, always offering prayer with joy, my every prayer for you all. In view of your, plural, participation in the gospel from the first day until now. As Paul is writing this, he is not just saying what I just said, which is God has a plan for your life. That's clearly biblical and clearly true. But as he's writing this, he's writing this to the local 
church. And he's saying that when God lays the foundation for a local church, God builds what he wants on that foundation. And when God begins a building in a local church, he actually completes that. He actually finishes the work that he set out to do and that God will complete the good work in the Philippian congregation that he began there. And this principle holds true. This is not stealing a promise for somebody else and applying it to us. This is a principle that is taught throughout the pages of scripture, Old and New Testament, that God is faithful in his very nature and therefore he cannot give up on us. Okay, wake up the person next to you. I just said God cannot give up on us. He, he cannot give up on us as individuals and he cannot give up on us as a local church. God has always had a plan for this church and that plan is continuing because God is faithful. He's only just begun the work that he's doing in and through Grace Fellowship. The work that God is doing in this church depends completely on his faithfulness and his power. You and I don't have to be great. God's already great. We just have to be available. We just have to be willing to cooperate with him. And that means all of us. Is it just me or have you noticed that our society really needs Jesus? There are hurting people everywhere. And people are grabbing at straws. Just any, I walked into Barnes & Noble the other day. Yeah, there are still some bookstores in the world. I walked in. I walked in, you know, there's a foyer, it's a big foyer as you walk in, and they always have a big display there, right? Uh, This is what we're promoting, this is the theme of the week or whatever, you know what? There was maybe 20 books on display, all all together displayed, you know what they were all on? The occult. Every last one of them. It was either astrology, fortune telling, um, and on and on it goes. Uh, Divination, witchcraft, versions of Wicca, all of this, this is Barnes and Noble. This is not Bob's bookstore. This is a, a national chain that has an HR department and a human relations and a, and a marketing department and all that kind of stuff. And somebody in there thought, hey, this is the market. And I did some research and you know what I found out? Interest in the occult has spiked in the last five years like never before in the history of our country. This country needs Jesus, they're grasping at straws. Maybe I can learn a spell that will fix my life. Maybe the stars have the answer for me. And God places a church in a place like this and places us in this church and says, you are the light of the world and I'm not finished with you yet. Guys, the, the society is broken and, and politicians don't have the answers. And and, and, and we all want sweeping social change, but sweeping social change is not the answer. New philosophies are not the answer. Government stimulus checks are not the answer. Only Jesus is the answer, period. And the church, this church in particular, is right at the center of God's plan to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus and meet the need that cannot be met in any other way. We're God's means of sharing that grace. We're talking at our grace group this week about um, the need for revival. 
And, and we sort of did this quick glance at the history of revival in the world. And we said, man, in every single one of these cases, revival is ushered in by the extraordinary prayer of God's people. When we think about spiritual awakening or revival, we think of, you know, those bad people out there changing their ways and coming to church. Guys, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with us, the church, being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit so that our lives are different. And when our lives are different, people see that difference and they're like, what am I doing looking at this astrology book when I have a next door neighbor who has Jesus and he's filled with joy no matter what happens? And they ask us about our faith that we get a chance to share Christ with people. Those people in Philippi, they were lost. They had nothing. They were hopeless spiritually. Paul comes along and tells them about Jesus and they become a world-changing church. It starts with God's people and it starts with prayer. And so I, I realize, bear with me, I'm, I'm going a little long today. Oh, if you've if, if you just got to get to Applebee's first, go ahead and go. But, <laughs> but, but I just want you to understand something. Um, it has to begin with us. And it has to begin with prayer. As we go into 2023, I'll just tell you, and you know this from experience, a life of prayer is hard. It seems like it shouldn't be, but it really is. And, and, and it will be hard for you and I to become people of prayer this year. It's gonna involve sacrifice. You, you, you might have to stop binging Seinfeld or The Office for the 15th time and actually say, I'm going to devote that time to prayer. Sorry, I step on some toes there. <laughs> um, but if God's going to complete this good work that he's begun in us, it begins with prayer. It begins with him. It begins with pushing into him. It begins with reading his word. God changes hearts and lives. And we cooperate by spending time with him and giving him access to our hearts. So that good work starts in you and me. Let's, let's stop pointing our fingers outward and let's look in the mirror and say, God, what do you want to do in my life? And that good work that God's going to do, it also involves fellowship. You know, you could, you could if, you, if, you went, if you wanted to, you could go online and you could purchase every single part of a car and have each of those parts shipped to you individually, and you could put all those parts in your garage and fill your garage with car parts, and that car will not take you anywhere because it's a collection of parts and not a car. But if you have the knowledge and understanding of how each of those parts works, and you could put each of those parts together and create a system, that car will take you anywhere. And, and we often look at the church, the local church, and we see ourselves as just a bunch of parts that come on Sunday mornings and we all sit in the same garage together. And we wonder, where's the power? Where's the movement? Where's the transformation? Where's the change? It's because God never called us to be a bunch of individuals walking in the same direction. He called us to be one body made up of many members. And for that to happen, we have to weave our lives together. It is not enough to just have the same address of the building you attend on Sunday mornings. We actually have to open up our hearts to one another. We actually have to get arm in arm and join our lives together. So here's my commercial real fast. Please, if you're not in a, in a grace group, please join one. Being in a grace group is life-changing. If there is any way you can do it, do it. And if you're in a grace group, 
And you just go on your, on your church center app and you can sign up for any group you want to sign up for. And if you're in a grace group, let me ask you to do this. Don't just attend meetings, do life together. It makes all the difference in the world. It's one thing to see each other every Wednesday night or something and, and have snacks together and talk about the sermon. It is another thing to bear one another's burdens, to weep together, to laugh together, to mourn together, and to carry one another when we're falling. That's what God calls us to do. And if, if, if we're gonna become the church God has in mind for us in 2023, we're gonna have to take that sort of fellowship seriously. And the last thing I wanna point out is that God's plan for us involves Everyone, every single one of us, using his or her gifts for ministry. God put us here on purpose. It's easy to see the people who are on the platform on Sunday mornings as being the ministers in the church and the rest of us as the audience, but that's not the picture that the Bible gives us. The Bible says that he has gifted each one of us with different gifts and that when we come all together, it's an amazing picture of what he wants to do. And, and you know, this last year 2022 some of you will remember we lost two full-time staff members and moved away two full-time past uh, staff members this past year both of them happened to be incredibly gifted musicians and worship leaders so so we lost our two worship leaders in 2022, and by the way, if you've been at this church for any length of time, you will find that God keeps taking some of our most amazing people and, and growing them here and then sending them elsewhere where he uses them to change the world. And we're just used to it, and that's how it goes, and that's exactly God's plan, and I'm glad he's doing it. But man, when I sit there as the pastor and watch these two gifted worship leaders, full-time staff members, both leave in the same year, I'm like, what in the world? How are we even going to approach worship? And let me just say this right out loud in front of everybody. I think 2022 has been the most worshipful year we've ever had as a church. I've been blown away to see what God has done because a whole bunch of people, the people you see up here Sunday to Sunday, a whole bunch of people said, hey, I'll step up and help lead worship. I can do that. Maybe God could use me. And, and it's been incredible to watch that team come together and, and serve us. And I've had some of the most impactful worship times in my entire life right here on Sunday mornings with a group of worship leaders who are all volunteers, none of whom are those people that we used to look at with the spotlight on them and say, this is the person we need. That's what God does. That's what he's doing. And there are thousands of different um, behind the scenes jobs. Those are the people on the platform. So many things that happen behind the scenes because people like Chuck and Chris Fry, they, they just never seek re uh, recognition. All they do is serve. Just serve, serve, serve. What do you need? Serve, serve. Hey, how can I help? Serve, serve, serve. And they're not the only ones. There's a whole bunch of you guys who just step up and say, I'm willing to serve. And I'm blown away because I'm going, God, make me more like these guys. And, and watching the way that people serve joyfully, expecting nothing in return. I praise God for them. I praise God for the numerous other people in this church who tirelessly serve and nobody recognizes, nobody knows. Nobody thinks about what it takes to do these things. There's a whole team of greeters that just greet us and care for us and give us information when we come. There's coffee bar workers out there every Sunday. Best coffee in the San Gabriel Valley, Grace Fellowship. And... 
And it's just like everybody, that our tech team, the people that are in that booth, every one of them is a volunteer. And they put together this level of technological experience for us every week. Um, an amazing children's ministry team. Right now, there's people in there that are loving on kids and introducing them to Jesus so you could pay attention to the sermon. And so pay attention. Uh, <laughs> Don't waste their efforts. We have a team of elders, all of them volunteers who lead this church, who get on their knees and pray, whose hearts break for you, who serve you in every way in the background while you don't notice. People who, who uh, uh, create and work on our website, and our social media, they send out the prayer requests every week. They handle the finances for the church and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Those are the things it takes to do the church ministry. But the thing that excites me the most is that when you leave this place and it has nothing to do with the programs of this church, there are people that are impacting their neighborhood, caring for the kids of their neighbors, volunteering at daycare centers and working at schools, teachers who, who put in ridiculous hours because their kids need extra help and they go to the homes and talk with these parents and, and invest and invest and invest and invest and don't think that's any less ministry than the preacher who stands up here on a Sunday morning and preaches a sermon. That's what God's called us to and that's who we are as a church and I am just blown away that God has given me the chance to be a part of this church. And I, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to mention that we need everybody contributing their gifts if we're gonna walk in God's plan in 2023. Maybe you love kids and you'd love to be a part of children's ministry in some way. Let us know that. Maybe you're in a financial position to invest financially. Please do that. We, we try really hard not to make a big deal about fundraising. We think of, of giving as worship. It's about taking resources that God has entrusted to you and using them for his glory. But But... I want you to know every single thing that gets done here gets paid for by the offerings that people make. And so I encourage you, if you're not somebody who's giving already, just pray about it. Nobody's ever gonna hassle you about it. Nobody's ever gonna get in your face. Nobody's gonna ever tell you you should give more. But I'll just tell you this, pray about it. And if God puts it on your heart to give generously, give generously. The point is this. We're not just individual children of God. We are collectively the family of God. And the work God began in us, he began in this whole church. And maybe, maybe this is your first Sunday here and you're like, what the heck did I just walk into? Or, or, or maybe you're new in the last few months here and you're trying to figure all of this out. Or, or maybe you've been a part of this church for decades, I don't know. But I'll tell you this, he began a good work in us over 30 years ago with just this year in mind. God wants to do amazing things, and he's brought you to be a part of this. To be a part of Grace Fellowship is to be a part of a gigantic, world-changing, eternity-altering, grace-giving work of God in the lives of Christ, in the lives of people meeting Christ and having their worlds changed. And as we start our year together in 2023, I want to celebrate you I want to celebrate us. I want to celebrate Christ as a church family. And one of the best ways I know to do that is the Lord's Supper. 
And so I want to just invite you to take out this cup that you were given on your way in. If you're at home, you want to go ahead and grab some juice, some bread, some crackers, something, so you can join us in this. Um, but, you know, Jesus gathered his 12 disciples and spoke to them as a group. And he said, hey, guys, you're in this together now. It's a commissioning. It's a calling to walk in fellowship with one another and to walk in fellowship with Jesus. And so he says, you know, I'm gonna shed my blood in order to make it possible for you to walk with Christ and for you to have a transformed life. I, I'm, I'm going to give over my body to be hung on a cross so that your sins can be done away with and that collectively I can use you to change the world and I'm gonna start in your life. And he invited them to do that and then he said, and continue doing this, and as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Remember what he did for you. And, um, you know, it's, it's the age of COVID, so we have these fancy sealed uh, communion cups, but they're very easy to open. Take the small side first and open it. Take out the bread. And then you can flip it over and open the juice side. And I'm gonna pray and then we're going to together just partake of the bread and the juice as a way to launch our year together as we continue to walk as a church family into what God has in store for us. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we come before you now as people who are humbled by what you've done for us as individuals and uh, inspired by what you've called us to be as a, as a collective body, as a group, as a local church. Father, as a local church, we want to serve you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we want to do it collectively. We pray that you would awaken each one of us to those gifts that you want to use for your glory. We pray, Father, that, um, that where there is um, brokenheartedness, you would bring healing. That where there is hopelessness, you would be our hope. That where there is doubt, you would fill us with faith. That where there is weakness, you would be our strength. Father, as we partake of the bread, which represents the body of Christ, and the juice, which represents the blood of Christ, we celebrate you, Lord Jesus, and all you've done for us. And we ask that you fill us and use us as you complete the good work you've begun in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Let's stand together. And now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even think. To him be the, the glory in our individual lives, in our life as a local church, in the year 2023, as we march forward with Christ. To him be the glory. Lord, may it be by your power, may it be by your strength, may it be by your faithfulness, may it be by your grace that our lives are carried along this year. For each person who is hurting, God, I pray you would help us to lift one another up. For each one that you have strengthened for a purpose, I pray you would carry out that purpose in our lives. And that we would, in fact, join arms and walk together as one body 
Father, speak to us as individuals. Use us as a body. We dedicate our hearts to you. We dedicate our lives to you. We dedicate Grace Fellowship to you. And we dedicate the year 2023 to your glory and yours alone. Finish the work you've begun in us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.